As I've mentioned in both of our first two studies in this new series titled The Gospel of Grace, our travel through the the Gospel of John, is that it's not an accident that John ties the very beginning of his gospel back, way back, to the creation narrative provided in Genesis. As a matter of fact, we're going to see this morning that so much of what John writes takes on a whole new level of significance and depth of meaning through the prism of the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1 verse 1, we read, In the beginning God created. (laughs) Sadly though, it didn't take very long for man to rebel against God, sin to enter the equation, and creation to be marred from its original design. But then John, so many years later, opens his gospel with this phrase, In the beginning was the Word. See, John is intentionally presenting Jesus as both our God and our Savior within the context of Genesis 1. While Genesis records God's original creation, in his account, John will present Jesus' recreation, reversing the effects of sin, light reentering the darkness, life in place of death. Additionally, if you go back to the original narrative presented in Genesis 1, you will notice a similar phrase used following each phase of creation. After creating the sun and stars, sea and sky, trees and flowers, birds, fish, and land animals, after each day, God would evaluate what he had just done, and he would declare, using the same phrase over and over and over again, It is good. And note, God was not taking pride in his handiwork, but was instead judging what he had just made based upon how the crescendo of his creation, mankind, would enjoy it. It wasn't, wow, I did a really good job with that. It was, wow, man is going to totally love that. And don't we? A sunset or a starry sky. Nature, the natural world, created for our enjoyment. And it's with that in mind that what becomes interesting about John's approach is that following his initial thesis recorded in the first 18 verses of the chapter that lay out Jesus' identity and ministry purpose in a general sense, John immediately transitions to the ministry of another John, John the Baptizer. And this is not an accident. Though God's initial creation was considered by the Creator to be good, because of man's sin, man's rebellion, all of God's created order had been soured. Man's rebellion tarnished God's perfect work. What had been declared by God to be good was no longer good. It was no longer as God had originally intended or designed. Because of sin, man had fallen, and this world immediately rebelled against him. I find it interesting that John the baptizer, sent before Jesus, sent by God, came to specifically prepare the hearts for the ministry of Jesus. And to accomplish this, his mission, his message was very, very simple. Yes, it was about repentance over sin, Yes, John wanted Israel to admit their fallenness. But in a sense, what John is wanting people to admit is that this world God had declared was good now wasn't. That it wasn't good. What God had declared to be good was no longer. Mankind was lost in their sins, was in need of a Savior who would provide salvation. In Genesis 1, we read, after created order, it was good. John the baptizer shows up and he wants you to know things are not good. Things are not as they intended. Things are not as God designed. It's his message and and its most simplistic presentation reversing the message of Genesis 1. Let's dive in. Verse 35. We left off with verse 34. This is how we do it. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So John 1 verse 35, we read, Again the next day, John, this is John the baptizer, stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, 
and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which then John adds, which is to say when translated, teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, come and see. Back in verse 28, we're told John the baptizer had specifically operated in a region known as Bethabara, which, interestingly enough, was outside of Israel proper, beyond the Jordan River. Geographically, most scholars believe Bethabara was located on the eastern side of the Jordan River, across from the ancient city of Jericho. Remember Jericho? The children of Israel marched around, the walls came a-tumbling down. Same Jericho. Historically, it is believed that Bethabara was the ancient site on the other side of the Jordan River where the Israelites originally crossed into the land of promise. Though we're told by another of the gospel writers that this area was nothing but wilderness. Strategically, it served John's purposes perfectly. Since Bethabara was really a turnstop for pilgrims that were making their way down from the Sea of Galilee along the Jordan River Valley, before then making their way through the trek across the Judean wilderness up to the city of Jerusalem, this area, Bethabara, was not only well traversed, but it was easily accessible by the majority of the population. As such, there should be no surprise that John the baptizer, what he's doing while in the wilderness, while in the middle of nowhere, it attracted, it, it drew a crowd, multitudes. Not only from Galilee, the region of Galilee came to hear John and be baptized, but also multitudes from Judea, as well as the city of Jerusalem came to hear him. Now for context, it's important to keep in mind that John the baptizer had not only come to see Jesus as the Christ when he baptized him and had declared him already publicly to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but Jesus, by this point in our story, has already spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness where he's tempted on three separate occasions by the enemy. All of that happens before this passage takes place. We're told that in this particular instance, John. John is standing there with two of his disciples when he again sees Jesus. And though we have no idea where Jesus is walking from, or for that matter, walking to, John takes the opportunity to identify Jesus again to these two disciples. He turns to them and he says, you see him? That is the Lamb of God. Well, John will give us the identity of one of the two disciples as being a man named Andrew. It's likely the second of these two disciples of John the baptizer was none other than the author himself. That these two disciples are Andrew and young John. As a witness, an eyewitness, of everything that would follow. The Apostle John here is recording for us, he's recalling his initial firsthand experience with Jesus, which adds just, I think, a very cool depth to all that's about to be recorded. Notice that upon this statement as to Jesus' identity, what happens? Behold the Lamb of God! Well, the two disciples leave John, and where do they go? We're told they start following Jesus. Literally, they begin to tail him. Jesus is making his way nonchalantly. These two disciples are at a distance, checking him out, following him. Now, I love what comes next. John tells us that as they were following him, presumably at a distance, Jesus, he turns around, he stops, he turns, and he looks right at them. And he says to them, what do you seek? Aside from the obvious application that Andrew and John were very terrible private investigators, consider for a minute that these are the first recorded words of Jesus in John's gospel. There is no doubt 
that as the aged apostle, years later, is thinking back to his first encounter with Jesus, the initial question that's still ringing in his ears is what? What do you seek? Please don't miss that. Do you know that this is the same question that Jesus asks of absolutely every single person who encounters him for the first time? And this is why Jesus asks this question. You see, how you answer this question, what do you seek? It really defines everything that will follow. You know, if you come to Jesus seeking nothing more than a good example to live by, a good example, there is no question that Jesus will show you the most excellent way any human being could ever live. If you're looking for an example, he'll provide one. If you come to Jesus to be taught spiritual truths, coming to Jesus as a, a great ethical teacher, there's no doubt in my mind that you will find yourself incredibly enlightened. And yet, the irony is that your subsequent experience with Jesus will be severely limited. And here's why. You're seeking the wrong thing from Jesus. What do you seek? Understand, you can seek Jesus as a moral example or as a wise teacher, but if you fail to seek Jesus as a savior for sin, you will never experience what Jesus came to provide, salvation. And Luke 19 verse 10, we're told of Jesus's primary purpose, his primary mission statement, that Jesus came, quote, to seek and to save that which was lost. What do you seek? I'm also struck by the underlying implications of this question. If you're coming to Jesus seeking the correct thing, the idea being presented here is that the object of your quest, if you're seeking the right thing, will be found in Jesus. Friend, if you're seeking love, what do you seek? If you seek love, Jesus will provide love unconditionally. If you're seeking healing, well, he came to heal the brokenhearted. If you've lost your way, Jesus came that you may be found. If your life has left you disoriented, well, Jesus came that the blind may see. If you feel stuck, in your current situation, Jesus came so the lame may walk. If your life is marked with nothing but chaos and turmoil, Jesus came to provide a peace that would surpass even your own understanding. If you're seeking to be liberated from a destructive sin or, or an addiction ruining your life, Jesus came to set the captive free. If you're seeking a satisfaction that this world never seems to provide, Jesus came, he said, to quench your thirst. If you're looking for life, well, Jesus came to provide you life and that more abundantly. If it's a direction, meaning, purpose, Jesus invites you to take up your cross and follow him. If you lack a destiny, Jesus came to provide you a future and a hope. If you feel like you're dying inside, that's okay. Jesus came to raise the dead to life. The question Jesus asks Andrew and John is the same question he's asking each of us this morning. What do you seek? And it's in light of this question that you should also consider another statement that Jesus makes. Recorded in Matthew 7 verse 7. What do you seek? And then Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. I'm also encouraged by the interaction that follows here. Look back at the text. In response to Jesus' question, what do you seek? Andrew and John, they don't exactly answer him, do they? Look at their reply. It's an honest one. They say, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? And then I love it that Jesus replies with a simple invitation. Okay. Okay. Come and see. 
In fairness to Andrew and John, while they had enough information to follow after Jesus, I mean solely based upon the testimony provided by John the baptizer, that they had enough, enough information to begin a quest for truth themselves. When Jesus asks them what they're seeking, the truth is they don't know. They're not really sure what they're seeking. They just know they're seeking. Notice in their reply, Andrew and John refer to Jesus as rabbi or teacher. Though they understood enough to realize that Jesus was unquestionably a virtuous man, that, that Jesus deserved their honor and a measure of their respect, neither man was ready to, to refer to Jesus as being Christ or as John the baptizer, the Lamb of God. And yet I love the way that Jesus replies, responds, reacts to their honesty. What do you seek? Jesus, honestly, I, I don't know enough about you to know. I don't know how to answer it. And we see here that Jesus doesn't reply with a rebuke. Well, how dare you question me? No. Nor does Jesus here heap upon them any type of, of guilt trip. Jesus isn't entitled, nor is he presumptive. Instead, what does Jesus do? I love it. He simply meets Andrew and John exactly where they are by inviting them to come and see for themselves. What grace. Well, verse 39, we're told that they came and they saw where Jesus was staying and remained with him that day. John even remembers the time. He says it was about the 10th hour. One of the two, we're told, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which then John adds is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, but you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. As John reflects on that first day that he spent with Jesus, a man that would change his life forever. It was simply too much to put into words. Like we're not given here any of the specifics at all about what happens that day. We're not told what Jesus does. We're not told what Jesus is, is sharing with them, what he says. But the occasion is so impacting, so radical, that John just adds, Andrew leaves and he immediately seeks out his brother, Simon Peter. And he goes and he tells him, we have found the Messiah. Man to have been a fly on the wall of that meeting. Now, understandably intrigued by the prospects of maybe meeting the Christ for himself, what does Simon Peter do here? He agrees to go with Andrew and see if the claim is indeed true. I mean, what did he have to lose, right? Either Jesus was who Andrew said he was, which was awesome, or he wasn't. So what? Wasted an afternoon, no problem. Now, as the scene unfolds in John's mind, and remember, he's an eyewitness to the whole exchange, so many years later, you know what blows John's mind? What he still remembers more than anything else? John is still amazed by what Jesus does when Simon walks into the room. Now, now, now look back at the text. Before even a word exits Peter's mouth, what's the first thing John remembers? The first thing he can't shake. John remembers the way Jesus looked at him. That's powerful. In the Greek, this word looked, it's beheld. That's the way it's translated in the old King James. The word implies that Jesus does more than just sees him, but that he observes Peter. He's literally, Peter walks into the room and Jesus is standing there sizing him up. His look was contemplative. For a minute, imagine meeting someone like Peter. A man who would be known to shoot first and aim second. A man whose life is really characterized by this interesting series of extreme highs and terrible lows. 
I mean, his life is, is all over the place. Imagine meeting Peter, seeing him, and instantly knowing everything about his past as well as everything that would occur in his future, which is where Jesus is at. He looks at him. Jesus sees it all. Upon meeting Peter, Jesus already knew Peter, his past and his present and his future. As Jesus looks, what is he thinking about? What does he see? No doubt he knew the mistakes that Peter would make, but he also knew the man that he would become. In that moment, Jesus, Peter's meeting Jesus, Jesus is not meeting Peter. He created him. He knew him before the foundations of the world. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He knows Peter's beginning and, 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 and how it would all wrap up. In the moment, Jesus could see Peter a couple years later denying him three times on the night that he was betrayed, the night that he was crucified. He could see that. He could also see the day that Peter would be crucified upside down for Jesus' sake. Before a word is even uttered, Jesus could see it all. As he looked, he saw everything about Peter. And it's really only with that context in mind that what happens here makes any sense. John records that Jesus looks at him, seeing it all, and this is what he says. He says, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, what's important for our purposes this morning is the two phrases that Jesus uses. If you highlight or underline or circle in your Bible, this is what I would encourage you to, 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 to notate. Notate the words, you know, Jesus says, you are, just circle those words, but then also circle when Jesus adds, you shall be. You are, but you shall be. Like, I want you to know up front that this act of, of tweaking his name is that Jesus is letting Peter know that a transformation of who he fundamentally was was about to take place in an encounter with Jesus. While he came as Simon, the son of Jonah, Jesus is letting him know that he's going to transform him into Cephas, something totally different. And really, friend, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better instance that summarizes what Jesus wants to do. Like his ministry here, it's, it's, it's quantified in a nutshell. Like in coming to Jesus, he says to us all by his grace, and note, Peter has done nothing to deserve a transformation, said nothing to earn a transformation. This is all Jesus telling Peter what Jesus is going to do. Not what Peter's going to earn or merit or deserve right from the beginning. He sees him, he looks, he knows his past, he knows his future, and he says, you are, but you shall be. He says that to every one of us. Aside from what we do or what we say or what promises we might make, Jesus says to us, you are broken, but you shall be made whole. Jesus might say, you're hurting, I see that, but you shall be healed. Jesus might say, you, man, you are perverted. You're one perverse joker. But guess what? You shall be pure. You are selfish, but you'll be kind. You are condemned, but you'll be forgiven. You are wicked, but you shall be righteous. You are separated, but you shall be restored. You are, but when I'm done, you shall be. You know, I've mentioned on numerous occasions, and it bears repeating because it's important. While Jesus loves you just the way that you are, he loves you enough not to leave you that way. And it's a truth. Amen. Hallelujah like he did with Peter. To anyone that would come to Jesus, Jesus promises a new identity. 
a total transformation of your internal constitution. He ain't tinkering under the hood. He's taking the engine out and replacing it with something different. Jesus wants to make you into something new. Life in Christ is not about reclamation, but total regeneration. And it is quite something different. Before we continue, I do want to take a quick moment and make an observation about this man, Andrew. Though the Bible tells us that Andrew was from a Galilean town known as Bethsaida, that he was a fisherman like Peter, his brother by trade, obviously was an early disciple of John the baptizer, and immediately became a disciple of Jesus after just one afternoon with him. We are also told in the Bible that, that this man Andrew would later become one of the 12 apostles. But beyond all of that, we really don't know anything else about this man. He's kind of a mystery. Scripture provides no record of Andrew ever preaching a sermon, performing a miracle, articulating theology, nor does he write anything that's included in the canon. Nothing in your Bible. As a matter of fact, apart from the listing of apostles in several places in the Bible, and these being his only recorded words, we have found the Messiah. Andrew is mentioned only three other places in the Bible, three other occasions. This passage, Andrew brings his brother Peter to Jesus, right? Well, again, in John 6, we're going to see that Andrew brings to Jesus a young boy who has five loaves and two fishes, the feeding of the 5,000. Andrew brings a young boy to Jesus. Again, in John 12, finally, you'll see that Andrew ends up bringing a group of Gentiles who are seeking to meet with Jesus. Only three times, no sermons, no books of the Bible, no great writings, no theology. Three times we see this man, Andrew. And yet, do you see a commonality in the three occasions he's mentioned? Every time you see Andrew in Scripture, he is always bringing someone to Jesus. Andrew isn't preaching at people. Instead, he's simply working his natural relational connections to bring the people he cares about to Jesus. Christian, I believe every single one of us, you might be like, Zach, I can't, I can't teach a Bible study. And kids, I have a hard time loving my own, yet alone someone else's. Children's ministry, heck no, ain't for me. And honestly, like going door to door, talking to people I don't know, that freaks me out. How can I be used for the kingdom? Every single one of us are called to an Andrew ministry. You might not be able to preach or teach or articulate theology, but you can work your natural connections, your natural relationships to just bring people. I have no problems telling someone about Jesus. If that freaks you out, if that worries you, you're not, you don't feel confident. All you got to do is bring them here, and I can tell them. Like, we'll just partner. You bring them, and I'll introduce them to Jesus. They might not like me or you in the process, but so be it. Eternity's on the line. Every one of us can at least do that, right? And Andrew is an apostle. And that's his ministry. One-on-one -on -one relational evangelism. Well, in verse 43, we're told the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip finds Nathanael. And says to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What an interesting contrast to everything we've just read, right? Andrew and John become disciples of Jesus after spending a day with him, right? And then Peter encounters Jesus after his brother Andrew witnesses to him and brings him to Christ. But Philip's experience here is radically different. Determined to leave Beth, Bethabara, 
head north back to the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, the way the text is structured, he seemingly goes out of his way. Man, I got to go. But before I go, we're told he finds Philip and calls him to be a follower. Because John tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, the city of Peter. It's likely that while the text doesn't say this, the implications are that Philip, this was not his first experience with Jesus. Like Though we have no record of previous interactions, it, it's reasonable to assume that since he's connected with Andrew and Peter, who are already Christ's followers, that Philip had likely spent a little bit of time around Jesus. It should also be pointed out from the obvious influence that his time around Jesus, coupled with the testimony of his friends would have had on him, that John intimates that Philip responded to Jesus' invitation based upon the evidence that had been provided to him in the scriptures. This statement that Philip makes to Nathaniel, that we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, indicates that Philip had been evaluating Jesus as he's hanging around, listening to his buddies, hearing Jesus, chilling with the crew. He's evaluating Jesus through the evidence the Old Testament had clearly conveyed about the coming Messiah. He's matching into some theology. In Philip's quest for truth, in the Word of God, it had become clear that in Jesus, the Word had become flesh. Now, before I move on, I find it deeply encouraging that before Jesus decided to leave this area, he goes out of his way to find and call Philip. The idea is that Jesus could have left and Philip would have been behind. Like, I want you to know that no matter where you are when it comes to Jesus, Jesus will never leave you behind. Jesus will always seek out and call. He will find a genuine seeker. It's funny to me. But look again at Philip's statement to Nathaniel. While there was no doubt Jesus had gone out of his way to find Philip, what does Philip say to Nathaniel? He says, We have found him. You know, so many people get all bent out of shape about this debate. The election, God's sovereignty, and man's free will. Like this grand debate. Are we predestined or do we choose? I, I don't think it's really that complicated. Like the Bible here attests that from Philip's earthly vantage point, he had found Jesus, right? That's what it says. And yet the Bible is also clear that from the perspective of heaven, it was quite the opposite. Jesus found him. Which one's correct? I think they both are. Philip found Jesus, but Jesus had found Philip. You see, no one finds Jesus apart from his pursuit of them. Well, upon hearing that Jesus was from Nazareth, Philip's testimony, we're told that Nathaniel, verse 46, says to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so Philip replies, come and see. Now, before we look at this exchange, there is one component to our story that I, I want to address for the serious Bible student. Many of you might not care, and I might go off on a little bit of a tangent, but if you're studying this on your, your own, I need to answer something. While in John 21, verse 2, we're told that Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee is one of the 12 apostles. So this man, Nathaniel, according to John 21, is one of the 12. <laughs> it's the only time Nathaniel's ever mentioned. It's the only time he's included in the list. Every other listing of the 12 apostles, aside from this one in John 21, mention a man named Bartholomew. Matter of fact, Bartholomew is specifically connected with Philip. Most scholars, and I believe this to be the case, believe that Nathaniel is likely his Hebrew name, while Bartholomew ends up being his Roman surname. 
that when you read of Bartholomew, it's actually Nathaniel, and Nathaniel is Bartholomew. You had John Mark. Mark, his Roman name, John, his Hebrew name. It's likely that, that Paul, it's not a change of name from Saul to Paul, that he was uh, Saul Paulos, two names, Saul being his Hebrew name, Paul being his Roman name. So this was a commonplace, Simon Peter, same time of dynamic, and that Nathaniel and Bartholomew, same person. That's kind of my point. Upon Philip's testimony here, that he and, and Andrew and Peter and, and likely John had found the Christ, right? Nathaniel's hang-up centers on what? That Jesus is from Nazareth. Like he communicates his skepticism here by, by scoffing. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And before you write off Nathaniel's observation here, there's some credence to what he's saying. Nazareth, to be fair, was an unlikely place for the Messiah, the Christ, to come out of, especially when the prophets said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth was a truck stop between Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It was known for its, its piggly wiggly and its, its brothels. It was a trailer park. Not exactly the hometown of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But I love Philip's approach to Nathaniel's question. It's probably likely that Philip doesn't have an answer. Can anything could come? Really? Nazareth doesn't even fit with what I know of Scripture, though he didn't know Jesus was born where? Bethlehem. Come on, Philip, answer me this. And yet, what does Philip do? He doesn't have an answer, and so he doesn't attempt to mount one. Like Christian, on a side note, if you're ever asked a theological question by a skeptic you don't have an answer for, the absolute worst thing you can do is to, an, is to attempt an answer anyway. If you're asked a question you don't have an answer to, it's okay to simply admit that you don't know everything about everything. Heaven forbid. When facing such a situation, I'd encourage you to take a page out of Philip's playbook. Which, most interestingly, is a page out of Jesus' playbook. Knowing Jesus Christ is really good at providing evidence that he's Jesus the Christ. To the skeptic's question, you should just provide an invitation. Bro, I don't really know the answer to that question, but why don't you come and see? We'll, we'll find out together. Come and see. What did Jesus say to Andrew and John initially? Come and see. Come and see for yourself. The truth is you don't have to provide an answer to every question to have the authority to provide an invitation anyway. Well, verse 46, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Well, Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, I will admit to you up front that this is maybe one of the most bizarre exchanges in all of the Bible, especially from Jesus. It's kind of a head scratcher. Like, wow, like what in the world is happening here? And I think it's compounded by the way that it's translated into English. To a Jewish audience, though, what's being conveyed by Jesus to Nathaniel, it's gnarly. Like, it's, it's kind of a, a, a brain meld. As Nathaniel approaches, what does Jesus say? Look, look back at what's being said. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. 
Now, while the implications of that statement are lost in our tongue, in the original language, Jesus is making a really profound observation about Nathanael. Now, to help understand what's being articulated, note that this word deceit literally means guile or craftiness. Beyond this, Jesus' use of the word Israelite in contrast to the idea of deceit or craftiness, gives this a deeper level of significance. As a matter of fact, with these things in mind, the scholars behind the Septuagint, an early translation of Scripture, they actually translate this phrase, no deceit, as no Jacob, the ultimate man of craftiness. Like the verse can actually be read and it's translated. Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no Jacob. See how that's significant, especially to a Hebrew. Genesis 32. It's a fantastic passage. A passage where Jesus, right, he wrestles with Jacob, the ultimate carn artist. Jacob meaning heel catcher. And what does he do? He ends up changing his name to Israel which means one ruled by God. This wrestling match, Jacob finally surrenders. See, what Jesus is saying to Nathanael, you can read it like this. Nathanael, I know that you are a true Israelite, that you're a man ruled not by your passions or by your whims, but by God. That you're an Israelite in whom there's no Jacob, that there's no craftiness, that you're not playing a game, that you're not pretending to be someone you're not. Nathaniel, I know that you're the real deal. Like it would appear, in contrast, that Jesus here affirms that Nathaniel indeed had a love for God, a genuine devotion for the things of God, that Nathaniel was a man serious about his obedience. Nathaniel, the name, it means gift of God. And most scholars believe that Nathaniel may have come from a, a, a strict religious background, which is why, right? Philip would come and what would his appeal be? We have found the one in whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, meaning that Nathaniel had a, a, a spiritual acumen, a religious acumen. And then his, his response is theological. Can anything could have come out of Nazareth? I've studied the scriptures. How does this work? You see, Jesus here, he's affirming that, that, that he was a religious man, a devout man. And to, to further validate that point, when Nathaniel responds, and, and it kind of removes some of the arrogance from it, right? Because what's his reaction? How do you know me? Right? And if you're just reading through it, it comes across weird. It comes across a little bizarre, a little entitled. But in context, it makes sense. I know you're the real deal. I know you're serious. And Nathaniel's like, yes, I am. Absolutely. I have a passion for God. I have devotion for God. I love the things of the Lord. But then notice what Jesus says next. He says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In line with rabbinical tradition, the fig tree was the traditional place for religious study. It was a, a traditional place for meditation, for prayer. It's likely that what Jesus is doing here is that Jesus is publicly confirming what Nathaniel had been privately praying. This moment, keep in mind, is so radical for Nathaniel, right? That his only response to this statement, I saw you under the fig tree, is to say what? He's convinced. That's all I needed. He declares, Jesus, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. It had to have been profound. Beyond this, in lieu of Nathaniel's faith in Jesus being stirred by just this simple revelation, Jesus makes another statement that ties in with the whole idea, right? He says, Most if you're surprised by this, Nathaniel, an Israelite with no Jacob, this blows you away, most assuredly I say to you, you will see heaven open 
and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. If you do a search for this phrase, the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son, you'll only find it in one other place in Scripture. In Genesis 28, Jacob dreams a dream. He dreams a dream of a ladder on earth and heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending. You see what Jesus is saying here, it takes on a deeper level of meaning when you connect it back to Jacob. Jacob having his name changed to Israel with this dream of a ladder, with the angels of God ascending and descending from heaven to earth, it had been interpreted in that day by the religious leaders to mean that God's work on earth would occur through the nation of Israel, through Jacob, through Israel. And yet what Jesus is saying to Nathanael, he's telling, he's implying to this deeply religiously inclined man that God's work would from that point forward no longer occur through Israel, but would occur through whom? The Son of Man. He's making a theological statement to Nathaniel, a profound one. Now, not to get overly typological, but Jesus seeing Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree it ties in with this whole idea perfectly. Once again, to the rabbinical mind, a fig tree had come to symbolize the nation of Israel. If you go all the way back to Adam and Eve and their attempt to cover their shame, the shame caused by their sin using fig leaves, Genesis 3, this particular tree, the fig tree, had come to represent Israel and her attempt to provide effective covering for their sin through their obedience to the law. As a religious man, Nathaniel understood the symbolism. You see, Nathaniel took pride in his religious covering, his works, the law, his obedience. As an Israelite, not a Jacob, Nathaniel was faithfully sitting under the covering of the fig tree, the covering of the law, the covering of Israel. And yet, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying to Nathanael, he's telling him that God's work would not only now be accomplished not through Israel, but through himself. But he's saying that what their religious system had failed to do, had failed to cover, he had come to accomplish. Look again at Jesus' statement. He says, when you were under the fig tree, <laughs> I saw you, Nathaniel. I saw you. Just as God was able to see through the covering of the fig leaves to see Adam and Eve's nakedness, Jesus is telling Nathaniel that he could see his sense of shame that he could see his brokenness in spite of his religious works. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, and I know I'm taking a little license here, that Jesus is articulating, Nathaniel, I've come to do what Israel and this religious structure could never do for you. And you know it's failed. I know your shame. I know your sense. I know your inadequacy. Nathaniel, I've come to provide you a covering as the Lamb of God. How interesting, right? In Genesis 3, in place of the inadequate covering of fig leaves, what did God do? Sees Adam and Eve. Adam, Eve, yeah. Why are you covered in those prickly things? We ate of the fruit. We're naked. How do you know that? We've sinned. And there's a judgment. And God, there was consequences. Had to kick them out of the garden. Separating them from the tree of life. So that they wouldn't live in their fallenness forever. And on their way out, what does he do? Those coverings, your best attempt to cover your shame. You know what? Let me help you out. And it's in the garden that he provides effective covering. We're told lambskins. Where did God get lambskins? From a lamb. 
Thought I'd pass that along. And I don't know if you, if you knew it or not, but a lamb kind of needs his skin. See, God offered a sacrifice. The lamb of God. The only other lamb of God. The only sacrifice God ever made. He offered one in the garden. He offered another on Calvary. The lamb of God. See, what he's saying is he's taking Nathaniel, this theologian, back to the garden. He's like the fig leaves, the covering of the figs. Garbage. I'm the Lamb of God that will provide you effective covering. And then you know what blows my mind? Should there be any surprise that during his week of passion, as Jesus is going back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem, he's going to die for the sins of the world as the Lamb of God. He walks by a fig tree, wants some breakfast. There's no Mickey D's. It was 11 o'clock. He missed the window. And he's walking by. He's like, I'm hungry. And he sees a fig tree. It looks like there's figs. He walks over. There's nothing. And he curses the tree. Claims you have fruit, but you don't. And he walks on. They come back and Peter's like, yo, that fig tree's all withered up. And Jesus teaches a lesson. And the whole lesson had to do with what? This religious system, the fig tree, Israel, the law, it claimed to provide fruit, but it never did. And he curses it because he had come to do what the fig tree couldn't. I close with a question Jesus asks. What do you seek? Aside from all the things I mentioned earlier, I need to add that if like Nathaniel, you find yourself tired, tired of trying to be good enough, tired of of seeking to prove your worth, tired of seeking to earn God's favor, tired of failing in the shame and these feelings of deep inadequacy over your sin. Not only does Jesus say, I see you. I see you under that. I see what you're carrying, that burden. I see you. But he says, let me cover you. Let me cover you. What are you seeking? Where religious works fail, the spotless Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. So as we close...